Tonight, I wanted to talk briefly with you about what is metaphysics. Um, I've already mentioned a little bit about it. Um, metaphysics is has a big name and is a scary name, but it's not that scary of a study. It's actually quite beautiful. Of all the things I've studied in my life, this one is probably the most influential thing. That and the Summa Theologica. Metaphysics and the Summa Theologica are probably the two things that have influenced me the most. It's hard to compare them. Nicomachean ethics of Aristotle are also very big in my life. Is also very big in my life. Um, But I say that to uh, say that it has a very powerful effect upon us. It is very important today to form our minds to be contemplative. For the contemplative life, I think that the air that we breathe is an air that is anti-contemplative and is anti-metaphysical. And so it's a healthy way to begin again, to reform or to form the way we see the world. It is something that's worth spending a long time on. Um, And the best way to do that is probably through classes on it. Um, And there are some pretty good books. But remember that when you study philosophy, it's more like eating a steak and less like eating a a dessert. You have to chew for a while. It's not not necessarily... um, uh, easy, easy, easy when you first read it, you know. But metaphysics is simply the study of that which is, study of the reality. Oh. Metaphysics is the study of what we call being. The being is a big term that can be sounds scary, but we're in contact with being all the time. This thing is, you know. What does it mean to is? You know, we use a big word when we start switching it over to being. What does it mean to be? Um, And this thing is, it's artificial reality, too, because it's made by man. It's made by man. Um, And what is the is of this thing? What is the is of my encounter with you? I see Jacob. I could shake his hand. Um, What is this is? It's existent. You can have powerful moments, such as moments of a friend, moments where you love someone, moments where um, you've loved someone with all your heart, and that person slowly is passing away. And for you, that person, in a certain sense, is your world. Because they're your friend. It's almost a definition of being a friend. It's a nice symbolic definition. Um, And to say that they become your world. And you have a friend and you really know that he exists because your world gravitates around him. And you're with your friend as your friend is dying and you hold their hand and at the moment of the death, it's like a light goes out. You think there should be something really big that goes on. Like lightning should strike or something, some earthquake should hit. But all it is is a light that kind of flickers. It goes out and that is, is no longer there. It's now a different is. When I say this is, it's not the same thing anymore. It's not the same thing anymore. As a powerful experience of an is. So you have minor little experiences like this eraser. But the most important ones would be that of a friend. Experiencing the is of a friend. Because that kind of existent reality is one that I really can't deny. I have a trouble denying my friend that he exists, that he is.
And we can ask ourselves, especially when you're holding the hand of someone whom you love as they're passing away, what does it mean to exist? What does it mean to be? And that kind of question has a whole lot more meaning than when I ask, what does it mean to be an eraser? But both are, right? Both exist. What does it mean to be my friend? And I can start to ask that question. The moment I say, what does it mean to be? I start to ask a question, what is being? Being is just an abstraction from this is. We don't experience being. I've never met a being. I've never met being, rather. I'd never shake hands with being. Hello, I am being. I mean, the only thing that we can say would be being would be God. But already I don't shake his hand either very much. Um, If I experience God, it's usually in faith that I experience him. So I wouldn't necessarily begin with that. I would just ask, what does it mean to be? And that experience of a friend really becomes something that's quite important because I find not only that my friend is, because I, I can experience death, so I don't experience death directly. I mean, I experience him dying, so he was. And I have another friend who is. That was experience the effect it has on me. When I'm around my friend, I really am. Something lights up in me. And there's like degrees, therefore. I am more me when I'm around a friend. So is there, could we say that some things exist more and less? It certainly feels that way. I have moments in my life where I feel like I'm not really existing as much as I could. Up to my potential, let's say, for lack of a better word. I'm not existing up to my potential. And there's other moments where I feel fulfilled. So is there varying degrees of existence? Also, this thing... Does it have this thing, an eraser? Does it have a greater existence than me or less existence than me? Well, I mean, it's artificial. When I look at this thing, is it an eraser or is it, I don't know, a piece of cloth, matter? And its existence is maybe as a racer is artificial. I just give it that name. So it's also an interesting question. Do I give it the existence as racer? Well, I mean, it exists without me, right? But as an eraser, I do give it an existence as an eraser. That's an interesting question. But so when I'm but when I'm facing my friend who's passing, I can experience something that like I could say there's a moment. We may want to call it the soul that ceases to be there. The soul, like, there's something that flickers. He, there was a light, let's say, in the eyes. And now it's gone. He was my friend. And now my friend is no longer here. So what does it mean to be my friend? It's like his existence ended. And there's something formal. We can call it a soul, if you like, for right now. 
But this is just because we're giving you a taste of things that I would like to dig into. But I would want to say that, his, that what he is has now changed. His whatness. What he is has now changed. He has changed from uh, my friend to a cadaver. And, you know, all existence that we encounter has that. It has something specific to it that makes it uh, what it is. Everything in existence has a certain whatness to it. And what it is. But that, that whole point, you know, in our human body, or our human person, rather, we would call that whatness what makes us what we are, we often call that a soul. But I don't experience directly a soul. I just experience directly my friend. You know? And I infer that there's a soul. I project that. But that's already an interesting question. What is this thing that we call whatness? What is, what is it that makes everything different from one another? What this racer is, is different from what this table is. And that's almost insignificant in comparison with what you are. And that's what philosophy is about anyways. Discovering who am I? Who am I? Uh, I'll notice that my friend, when I'm looking in the eyes of my friend, I'll notice that there's Two things, if I reduce it down to two simple things, there's always going to be Jane, my friend Jane, which I don't have one, but anyways, one day maybe, Um, Jane and the fact that she is human. There's always the individual and the universal. When I'm trying to say what she is, the most essential things are going to include what makes Jane Jane something special. But then there's a whole bunch of secondary things, and we'll call that substance, first and second substance, is the fact that Jane is an individual. And that she is, has something universal in her. <clears throat> That'd be her whatness. But if I say, well, there's a lot more to Jane than the fact that she's Jane. If I look at Jacob, there's a lot more to Jacob than the fact that he's Jacob. There's the fact that he's bald. But that's not essentially what he is, right? That's not essentially his whatness. I can't define Jacob as baldness. That wouldn't be it. Or there's also exterior things, more exterior than bald. There's also like his glasses that make up part of his persona, let's say. And we'll use another term for those things. Because they're secondary, we'll say they're accidental. Those are the term that we'll often use. We'll say it's accidental, which has nothing to do with accidents like car accidents and all that. It's nothing to do with that kind of thing. It's a term that we branded for thousands of years now, that we used for thousands of years, that means secondary attributes. And there's a ton of them. Like, for example, your intelligence. Say Jacob has an intelligence. But is that essentially what he is? Or is there more to him than just intelligence? That's a harder one. That's a harder one. We would say that that's one of his qualities, is that he's an intelligent Jacob. And it's really interesting, because you start to go into that, and you go, okay, what is primary and what is secondary? What is primary and what is secondary? Well, there's all kinds of secondaries. We'll say there's qualities, 
all the qualities of the reality are secondary. Quantity. There's all of your relations. And then there's a whole bunch more. But there's secondary attributes. This will later on in time, long after Aristotle, become very important for the Catholic Church, for example. When we start talking about um, three persons and one substance, we're going to start coming down to these terms. Or we start to talk about uh, two natures, sorry, yeah, two natures and one person in the, in the incarnation. Or we speak about transubstantiation. The word transubstantiation is based on this. This distinction between substance and quality and quantity. Because what happens when we do transubstantiation is that um, the bread keeps all the secondary attributes. So the quality, the quantity, the relation, all that remains the same. It's just what it is essentially has changed. So it's transubstantiation. Change of substance will be very important. There's a change of substance. To say that if you still drink too much of the blood of Christ, because there's too much left over, you will still get a buzz. Because the qualities remain the same. So you have to be careful. So you distribute it among the different people that are Eucharistic ministers so that you don't drink too much. We used to, it was my very first lesson in how to be a sacristan and a Eucharistic minister. It's not to drink too And the, because the qualities remain the same. The qualities remain the same. So it's the qualities that affect us. We start to talk about these things. But it's an interesting question. If you're going to come away with anything, it's like this question, what is is <laughs> what is existence and all of existence can be distinguished in between these categories and that's already something but that's not the thing that transformed the most my life that's something that I worked on and it's good because it starts to structure the way you see things that's why the church uses it so much it helped us to Understand to such a degree the Bible that it cannot be expressed. Just I gave you the doctrine of the Incarnation, the doctrine of the Trinity, and the doctrine of the Eucharist are all based in this already. All coming from all the word choice and everything is going to be used based in this. So you can see already it's going to have a huge influence upon the Catholic Church, but upon the worldview in general. This question about what, what a thing is. So someday soon we'll just give a whole seminar on what is metaphysics. But if we're just giving you a taste, I want to show you some of the beautiful things. And that would be one distinction. When I'm looking at my friend, I can see in my friend that there's something that he essentially is that is lost when he dies. All the qualities can remain the same. In the few minutes after he dies, he's still warm. You know, the, body, the cadaver hasn't grown cold. All the qualities can remain the same. He could be the same weight, could have the same color of hair. But what he is has changed. His substance has been lost. He is substantially different. The body is substantially no longer a... Jake, you know, or a Jane. It is now a cadaver. Now a cadaver. And so that essential thing, what, it, what makes you what you are, is a first step. But there's a further question. The what thing, the what it is, is one question I would ask. The more beautiful one, this one being more fundamental, the more beautiful would be why. 
the whys of existence. And it's interesting, because everything that exists seems to have a why. And go down through your experiences. All of existence seems to have a why. From a rock, all the way to intelligence. Everything you experience seems to have a why. Not the same why. Not the same reason why. But, like for a rock, his why of existence, from my experience anyways with rocks, it seems to be to fall. <laughs> it does. That's the way I experience rocks. Whenever you put it anywhere besides on the solid ground, it just wants to go down. <laughs> I, using the word want is already a, a big jump. It doesn't want anything. But it goes down. It goes down. Um, all the way to hu- human intelligence. Everything that we see has an ex- a reason for its existence. It does. And, that, and it's interesting to go down the list. Because when we're going down the lists, we can start to see that there's a difference between potent, potentiality, potency, and act. And that's going to be a really cool thing because, okay, the rock. Oh, let's actually do something uh, simpler too. Uh, Let's go with an eye, ear, nose. Um, Will. Intelligence. Go with, uh, yeah, I think that'll do for right now. Um, And it seems that there is a distinction. Uh, We'll call it three levels. Okay. Uh, Yeah, there you go. We'll say it's possible. Okay. The having of the end. And the end, or the reason why. Let's take the eye. If you close your eyes, and it's possible that you could see. Possible sight. You see will be actual sight. And then what do you see? Obvious. You should be able to say it. What do you see? No, you don't see me. You see color, usually, right? You see color. Your eye, your intelligence, your imagination might put together an image. Your intelligence might understand it's me. But your eye directly sees color. Your eye directly sees color. Your eye doesn't even see forms or shapes. It's your brain that puts that together, right? Um, your, your brain puts together a shape. Your eye just directly sees color. It just directly sees color and light. Light and color. I think it picks up like angles and things, but it's processed in your brain. Like, it picks up the variation of color, and therefore, therefore, your brain computes it to be angles and depth perception and all that. Um, and so you see, and what does you? What do you see? You see light and color. To be simple. At least that's what I experience. Because when the light's off, I don't see anything. <laughs> so there has to be light involved. And it's like the light makes the reality possible to be seen. And without that, so it actuates the reality around me. Um, 
And this would be the process of actualization. Passing from possible to actual, to act. Ear, real, real quick. Can hear. Hearing. Sound. Nose. Can smell. Smelling. The scent. Yep. This is where it gets interesting. The will can love. Loves or is attracted to the good. Intelligence can perceive, perceives the truth, can contemplate Contemplates the truth or the reality. And started to see, when I started to understand this, I started to see that there is a subtle distinction that goes on right here. That everything... Uh, from seeing, hearing, smelling, love, perception, contemplation, are all actuated by something. If you don't have light in the room, you can't see. If no light existed in the world, if there was no light at all, we would not have evolved to have eyes at all. If that makes sense? If, would, would anyone have any eyes if, if light didn't exist? No, there'd be no reason to even have them. They would never have been invented, let's say. Never, it would never have even been invented. Would, if there was no possible sound, would hearing exist? Same reason. It's because that there is truth to be known outside of me that I also have the capacity to know. In each case, the thing that actuates me is always something outside of me. In my experience, anyways. I need something that is going to actuate me. If I don't see the good, I won't love. I can't love. It's always going to be something that is going to actuate me. So it's interesting. So this one is always going to be first. And this one is always going to be second. Because this one is the having of the end. When I'm loving, when I'm actually loving you, it's like... Yeah, I have, I'm having the good. And one guy, when I was walking with one of the brothers, he turned over and he explained to me, he said, I just realized what it means. It's like when the fly flies over, goes, we're saying all this in French, flies over and lands on the food. Food, that's what he lands on. Yeah, he lands on the food and he starts going, okay. When he's flying, he could be eating. It's potential. He could be eating. He's attracted to the food. The food has an attractive power on him. When he comes up to the food and he starts to eat, the eating side of it is having of the end, and the end is the food itself. And the distinction between having of the end and the end is a very fundamental distinction. So, how did that affect me? 
Well, it's very big because this puts an order to your prayer life right away. What is first? How you feel about God or God? It's God. But is it how your feeling has nothing to do with it? No. It definitely has something to do with it because it's the having of the end, but it's secondary. When you go to pray, should you be looking at how, how you're praying or should you be trying to look at the good so that you might love? Should you be trying to look at God? The thing which actuates you. If you are talking about contemplating, is contemplative life all about, I don't know, uh, making sure everything is perfect in the home and taking care and saying all of your prayers and doing everything right? Is a contemplative life about that? No. That's included because that's all having of the end. But what it's about is the reality that attracts you. What is it about? It's about the true, the good, and the beautiful that you contemplate. It's about the true, the good, and the beautiful that you gaze upon. It's not about, first and foremost, this aspect of having. Or if I'm worried about my psychology... How do I get better? How do I feel better about who I am and where am I going? And let's say I've never been able to really love anyone in my life. Never really been able to love anyone in my life. Or I've never really been loved. How do I get better? Sometimes I need to work out some of the knots that are in me. Because I get so tied up and messed up inside that I'm not capable of getting over it. And so sometimes I need to get like shock treatment from, uh, I don't know, a group of friends and, uh, and someone praying over me and then doing, uh, I don't know, what, going to counselors and, and getting help. But once that knot is untied, I'm still not going to feel better. I could be like totally understanding of, okay, where my problem is and all that. But if I'm not living for something, I still won't be better. If I still don't have a reason why to get up in the morning, I won't be doing better. So how does this affect? It's huge. It's a fundamental distinction that when we're talking about in metaphysics, we'll try to say, is this across all of reality? And we'll end up saying yes. And then it'll touch every domain of thought. So, for example, why is there much more depression in places that are first world countries and uh, not in places like Africa? Well, often they see why they have to live. (laughs) And so why they have to live. So they they get up in the morning because if they don't, who's going to get the water? I mean, no one's going to go down and get the water from the well. They have an immediate why, not some imagined why. They have to get up and cook for their children. They have to get up. And when you have an immediate why, your whole person is actuated. You're alive and attentive. But in a society where we have no immediate why, we remain impossible and never... Reaching our potential. Never hitting that point of fulfillment. And so, it's a really, really cool distinction because it also is liberating. Coming back to the whole prayer thing, our founder of our congregation would always tell us, you should never be taking your temperature in prayer. Saying, how am I doing? How am I doing? Am I praying well? Is everything going well in my prayer? Um, And he would tell us not even to journal. Never to journal. Which, sometimes it could be okay, but he was right in some senses. 
It's because if I'm taking my temperature and seeing how I'm doing all the time, I'm staring at myself. And I have to wake up and get out of myself and move towards God and see God. If I'm journaling all the time, it could be that it's a prayer where I'm turning to God in my journaling and I'm offering my heart. And that would be good. But very often in journaling, it just becomes psychological analysis. It just becomes, or sitting in my own feelings and explaining my own feelings, you know, explaining my own feelings to myself. And that means I'm staying in this having, like I want to have love, but I'm not looking at the thing that can make me actually love. I'm not looking in the eyes of the friend. So it's a pretty interesting distinction. This is the one that um, changed a lot of what I thought and saw and put order to things. Now, if there's any questions before I go on, that that would be good. We've covered a whole bunch of different things. If you walk away with anything, walk away with metaphysics is talking, first of all, about the what. It's a place where we'll discover the soul in the most profound sense. What is also the place where we can discover God. But after discovering God, we could say the soul is immortal. It's a place where we can talk about immortality of soul. Also in metaphysics, too, it's talking about um, actualizing my potential. Uh, it's a weird way of saying it. Um, that I pass into act. And all of reality passes from possible to real. And how do you become real? How do you become real? You know, note that uh, we don't go up to a little boy and say, Oh, you're such a cute little person. We don't usually say that. We don't say, Oh, he's a wonderful person. We say he's a wonderful little boy. We say he's a great kid. We don't usually use the person. Usually, when we speak about little ones... They are persons, but they're also in potential. They're on their way up. That's why we do the whole education thing. And over time, we're hoping that they will become a a full-fledged person. Full-fledged person. As they grow older. The whole process of maturation will be the actualization of who you are. So anything particular stand up? Well, the it's because last time I think I spoke about it, right? Did I speak much about that this time? What did I say this time? Last time, it, so in the modern world, we don't talk about metaphysics much at all. And the reason why we don't is because they said, they, ever since Kant, and before, but really Kant was the big one, he said that you can never know this. You can never know the reality. All you know is your perception of the reality. All you, all you know is this, what I perceive. So, for example, I'm pouring a glass of water. As I'm pouring the glass of water, I feel, I see, there's all kinds of parts of that. I'm doing it for you, so there's a whole aspect about friendship in that pouring of the water. There's all kinds of lived experiences. I'm in a culture because of the kind of glass that I have and the way that I'm holding the pit. All kind of, we can analyze that and analyze that. But all that's me and the way I perceive it. But is there even a glass there? I don't know. All I know is what I, what I perceive. So I'll know, all I know is this aspect. It's on the sense of relative. You could say that. You could say it's relative, but it's not like I can control it either. It's not like I can all of a sudden say I don't perceive a glass. <laughs> I can't say that. So relative to a sense. So in the modern world, they will not say that there is any real reason why. 
There's no real reason why anything exists at all. Is what most philosophy would say. There's a perceived why. And all we and ever since deconstructionalism, all we have to do is deconstruct what you perceive to be the why so that we can reconstruct it however we want. Which is what we're doing right now with gender. For example. For example. But if there's a real if there's a reality that determines my why of existence, then I can't deconstruct it and take it apart and put it back together. It will no longer be real. It will be an artificial construction. Yeah. Yeah. A denial of my possible knowledge of reality. Oh, everything, anything can become political, but political will always be secondary. Consequential. It's always a secondary consequence of what we're saying. Remember, what's first has always been and will always be the one who contemplates the truth, but second is those who try to put it into action. It depends on the handicap, for example. It depends on the handicap. Um, if they're so, if they're still very intelligent, so if they're still very intelligent and they're surrounded by a very good family that's holding them up, they're still going to have a great reason why. If they're handicapped in the level of the intelligence, they may not be able to perceive any other why except for the fact that their mom loves them, so they'll still be very happy. You know, if, if their scope is like this, like, for example, mentally disabled, very often they could be happier and more loving and better off mm-hmm. because the, uh, they do have someone that really loves them. They do have a reason why. They have everything. They do have it. Now, if you get someone who's quadriplegic and is very intelligent and isn't able to do anything with his life besides sit in his own mind all day long, nobody talking with him and him not working, he has no, he's not even writing books, he's not doing anything, that's not a recipe for happiness. That's a recipe for misery. And that's why we work so hard with them to show that they do matter and to give them a reason why. You know? And that's why it's so important. So it just depends on the handicap, right? If you're able to function, then no problem. You you can find you can find that. Does that make sense? Yeah. But the reasons why. Yeah. Anything else? It's a big one, but feel free to ask. Something else. Yeah? Something else that um, would be nice to delve into a little bit. Is um, the, well... There's a lot. We can go into what is the uh, what is the truth and what is the intelligence, um, and that that's really a fun subject. Um, we talked a little bit about it last time, um, but let's talk about one of the great topics in metaphysics: is how do you discover God? Which is a really fun one, really good one, really important one. How can you discover God? And there's probably three kinds of arguments that I could think of right away. One would be contingency. Another would be by design. Another would be by conscience. 
This one is the one that you hear a lot of. And it's all post-cont. It's all like, if we cannot discover the reality, what we can discover would be um, that the reality seems to point towards God. When you study the complexity of the hand, how complex this hand is, you start to ask, well, yeah, I mean, you could talk about some chaos bringing it together, but it doesn't make much sense. It would make much more sense if there was a designer. And this kind of argument would be an argument like you would find with Father Spitzer, would be one of the better ones I've ever heard. Father Spitzer, he's in the U.S. Um, he's a lot on EWTN. Um, excellent, 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 excellent. And it's all about, for example, looking at modern physics. And saying, okay, so for example... The, the universe is only so big. And the difficulty of producing a planet which could allow life on it is much bigger than the possible amount of material which is in the universe. And so showing how difficult it is to produce a planet which is possible of having life, let alone life on a planet, it is near to the impossible to have it, and yet it is. So there must be something behind. So, um, saying the famous example would be from a philosopher named William Paley, saying you're walking down a path, and you look over in the grass, and you see a watch. You pick it up, you go, huh, who made it? You don't go, hmm, what a random, uh, what a beautiful example of the random causalities that have come together to make this watch produced from nothingness. You don't do that. You immediately conclude that there must have been someone who made the watch, you know? Similarly, when we look at the complexity of the universe and yet its simplicity of existence, like the mere fact I could do this, um, you start to wonder, is there a designer behind it? So the example of the watch. The problem that people have with this is something called the God of the Gap. Is that just because science hasn't discovered the reason why for the watch being there, doesn't mean that there isn't, it isn't going to discover it. And they'll give many examples of when we concluded, therefore it must be God that did it. And we found out later on that we have a scientific explanation for it. There are many times in history where we've done that. Therefore, it must be God. And to give credit to the Catholic Church, the man who discovered the Big Bang, being a Catholic priest, said, please don't use the Big Bang for this kind of design argument. And he, he didn't want that. Because of this whole temptation to say, okay, there's a gap. We don't understand it. Therefore, we posit God. There's another gap, therefore we posit God. We don't understand the design and how this happened, so we posit God. And it's not a good way of proceeding. And history has shown that every time we start to do that, give 50 years and it doesn't work anymore. And we have to come up with a new design. New design. But this kind of thinking started after 1800. Before that, this kind of thinking didn't really exist in the same way. I think there's a better way to discover God. And that's what we classically called contingency. 
And would you like to know about it? Hmm? Would you like to know? Would you? Would you? <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, contingency is it's not talking about how you get there. How, how did I come here? I got here because of my mom and my dad. My mom and my dad got together because, got there because of their mom and their dad. And you go backwards and backwards and backwards, and you just keep on going, actually, as far back as we can record history. Um, that, it's not doing that kind of thinking. But how, come, how do we exist right now? Why do I exist right now? Why do I exist right now? If a famous example would be the trains. Okay, you have four train cars right now in my little drawing. A, B, C, and D. A is pushed by B. B is pushed by C. C is pushed by D. Can you go on forever without ever finding a locomotive pushing it? The answer would be no, you can't, usually. You have to have a reason why it's moving at all. Why is it moving at all? Ultimately, it's a locomotive. This one, I don't know, with the choo-choo. I don't know how to draw a locomotive right now. Okay, um, you have to have a reason why. Or another example is, if, I'm gonna, if I go to Hospital A, and I ask for some blood, and they give me a bag of blood, and I say, where did you get the blood? They say, Hospital B. I go to Hospital B, where did you get the blood? Hospital C. But the problem is, none of these hospitals explain where the blood comes from. None of them explain where the blood comes from. So, can I go on forever? There has to be a, reason, a place where the blood came from. If we ask ourselves, why do I exist right now? And you say, because of my parents. That doesn't explain why I'm here right now. I could hypothetically not exist. Why am I here right now? I didn't say how I got here. I just say, why do I even exist at all? Why is there not nothing? Well, you have to find a, ultimately an uncaused cause. An uncaused cause. A cause which explains why I exist right now without going to another cause. You have to be able to say there is a cause that gives me my reason why for existence. A good person who talks a lot about this on EWTN and whatnot, his name is Bishop Robert Barron. He'll give a lot of arguments from contingency. And... That would be an argument from metaphysics. That would be an argument saying, I exist right now. Why do I even exist at all? You can't give me, like, for example, from the Big Bang. But then why does the Big Bang exist? You, I mean, you go, well, there was another Big Bang before that. And you can't go on to the infinite saying, why does anything exist at all? There must be a source And so Aristotle will say, all things are suspended by that one existence, the uncaused cause, who is infinite, who is infinite in his cause, and he holds all things in existence at the same moment. So he would go as far as to say, right now, I am suspended in existence by the one who chooses that I might exist, that wills that I might exist. There would be a 
Aristotle leading into St. Thomas Aquinas. All things are suspended by that one existence. So notice, not by design. It's not like I, I said, okay, the whole universe is designed this way, therefore there must be a designer that I got to that uh, conclusion. I said, my, my existence is dependent or contingent upon something else. And when I look at what brought that about, it's contingent upon something else. When I brought that, what brought that about is contingent on something else. And it cannot go on to the infinite. There must be a reason why everything exists. A cause that is not caused by another. My mom exists because of her mom and her mom. But why does anything exist? That doesn't answer my question when you say my mom exists because of her mom. Why does anything exist at all? There must be an uncaused cause. And once we discover that there's an uncaused cause, we could say a lot. And we'll say that uncaused cause is what religious traditions will call God. Do you know if he's close to us or far from us? That's an interesting question. Is he like just... An uncaused cause, just like I'm causing, and that's it? Or is he like a father to us? Does he guide our life? Is, is it a person? We're taught he guides our life. We are taught he guides our life. And can we say that in philosophy? And that, that would be what we call natural theology. Natural theology is when we start to say, on a philosophical level, well, he does guide our life, or he does not guide our life. You start to say, well, he's very distant, or he's very close. Ultimately, though, I would put forward that he does, and that he is present in guiding our life. Yes, but, but we'd have to get there. We'd also say, is he intelligent? Yes. It would have to be, because he's pure act, fully act, and in him there's no potency. But <clears throat> yeah, very good. So where we'll start to talk about it is, also too, when you look at the mystics and all that, where we're going to start to talk about this is um, when we look at the very reason for our existence, the core rationale for our very existence. And then we'll start to speak about, hmm, there must be some reason why. Some uncaused cause. But hopefully what this class could do is give you um, a little bit of an overview of all the different kind of subjects that we would talk about in this subject matter. Um and whet a little bit of the appetite for it so that you can deepen a little bit. Um, some of the more important aspects are worth really digging into. Like I said in the beginning, there's probably nothing that's formed the brothers of my community more than metaphysics. And I think that it is the reason why we... Um, it speaks so much about the contemplative life in our community, too. It's why, like, for example, we teach this to the missionaries of charity so that they can go out and teach this to the prostitutes out in the slums. It's what ultimately will uh, teach us the reason why for our existence, what allows us to be fulfilled and what will not. And I think it... It's a major point of renewal. It's one of the things that I, I mentioned in previous class. John Paul II always said, he said over 24 times, what the church needs the most today is metaphysics. And what is lacking the most is this. Where is metaphysics in the church? Where is metaphysics in the church? And so for, for all of that, let us pray.
In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, may you guide our minds and hearts so that we may explore the truth and deepen more and more what is your wisdom and your love. That we may grow more and more to place our intelligence and our heart at the service of your word and your life. Our glory be to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.